This is the weekly Sunday sermon from Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. You can find us at ranchobaptistchurch.org. This week's message by Pastor Jason Swanson, an overview of the Gospel of John, Signs and Times, Part 2. The original date of this message was the 18th of September, 2022. Well, good morning, everyone. And welcome once again to Rancho Baptist Church. It is a blessing to gather together in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to, to sing songs to him, to one another, reminding ourselves of how good our God has been to us in giving us the Lord Jesus Christ. If, if you are new, visiting, or you're not new, and you come all the time, we would love to, to pray for you. If you, if you have a, a certain prayer request, and it's more confidential, you don't want everyone to, um, to be praying, then please just you know, put a little asterisk and let us know confidential just for the elders. Um, but if you have not given us any contact information, we would love to, to reach out to you, answer any questions you might have. We're just so thankful that you are here with us this morning, that we have the pleasure, the privilege to gather, to open God's word together, and to allow Jesus to to be exalted this morning, to be lifted high. This really is just the beginning, as this is really, what, sermon number two on John, and and all we're doing is looking at John from, you know, a thousand feet, walking through what John penned in this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as I opened up last week, reminding uh, us something that has just been so helpful, so challenging for me, is considering what what we see in one of C.S. Lewis's books, where Lucy goes back to, to Narnia, and there she sees Aslan, and he looks so much bigger. And she tells him, hey, you've gotten bigger. And he says, no, I haven't. (laughs) You've grown in your understanding of me, little one. My prayer is that that is what would happen with each of us. That no matter how many times you've gone through the Gospel of John, no no matter how much you know about Jesus up to this point, that is, as we now dig into the Gospel of John week after week after week and, and, and come face to face with Jesus and all that he is, that he would become greater and greater and greater in your life and in my life. And let me add this dimension to this because we've been walking through this already with, with the, the first four signs that, that John depicts Jesus as being God. There's this other aspect, this time element that we see in the book of John. And what that teaches us is that God's timing is perfect. And that's something that we could all be reminded of and be encouraged with. Because what happens oftentimes is we don't really like whatever we've been dealt. Oh, when when it's the, the, the heapings of joy? Well, we'll take more and more of that. But when it's the heapings of sorrow or suffering, what, what, what we want to oftentimes do is say, okay, that, that, that's enough. And we sometimes forget that God is equally in the suffering and the sorrow as he is in the joy. And that the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's in control of it all. And we're going to see that over and over again as we walk through this gospel, as we see that God's timing is perfect and that they are not going to take Jesus before his time. That he has a price to pay for sin. Not his sin, but for, for our sin, for those that have believed in him. But let's start again this morning with John chapter 20. And what is the, the purpose statement, the reason why, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John penned this book? And that in that, there is something for us all. That we would grow in our understanding and in our belief of Jesus Christ in him. But let's begin in verse 30. As we see three themes that we're going to see continued on throughout the book of John. We saw them last week, we'll see them this week, and then we will see them week after week again and again and again. 
Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So all that John wrote was what, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God wanted us to know about Jesus so that, with a purpose of what? So that, look at 31, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He could have written a whole lot more. He could have written less. But God ordained that he would write just what he wrote. We don't need anything more. We don't need anything less. What we have is fully sufficient in God's word. And what I think is oh so powerful about John's gospel is this, is the disciple that Jesus loved. And as a result, the, the way that, that John pens everything and the way that he, he casts the, the story of Jesus and all the different life situations, miracle signs that we will see, the teaching of Jesus, he does it in a much more intimate and personal manner than the other Gospels. Jesus and, and John were, were very tight. And that relationship between the two of them comes out in, in the writing. And we see that, that, that John's heart was that as people would read this, that they would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says, that so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the coming one. That's the promised one. That's the Redeemer. Redeemer, that is the Savior. And who is he? He is the Son of God. He is going to present Jesus and all of his brilliance first and foremost as 100% perfectly God. And that believing you may have life in his name. That there is no other name for us to be saved. That there is no other way for us to gain eternal life but through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is where John goes. That is what he has written this entire gospel for. And so as a result, it is oh so good for us to recognize that the Lord wants to use this gospel and what he's going to teach us to share it with others. This is not something that we're supposed to sit on ourselves and just keep to ourselves, keep it in our pockets, but that we are supposed to share it with others. And each week, as we come back to God's word, the Lord will give us more and more ammunition, so to speak, to share with others the brilliance of Jesus and how wonderful our Savior is that we might share him with others. So before we go on, let me, let me pray for God to go before us in the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we stop and we acknowledge that we don't always think of you, Lord Jesus, as we should. That we let the worries of this world make you smaller and smaller in our minds at times. That we don't remind ourselves again and again of your greatness. That we don't stand in awe of you as we ought that we don't rejoice in your goodness as much as we could. Lord, I pray that you would become greater and greater in our understanding of you and in the way that we live, that it would, it would be understood. It would come forth in our actions that you are the only one that we live for and that our heartbeat is to live for you in all that we do to give you glory and honor. Lord, as we look at your incredible word this morning, may you speak to us. May you fill our hearts with joy that is unspeakable for how great and how good you are. And how wonderful you have been to us. And will continue to be. And set me aside and allow your word. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. To be the one that is active. The one that is working. To speak to the hearts that you, you could only speak to. In the way that 
that only you can for you know where everyone's at this morning. I do not. Thank you for the things that you have taught me already and for the anticipation, the eager expectation that you've given me for what you will bring to me each week as I open your word and get to behold you more and more in all of your glory. May you be honored and glorified now. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, giving us a little bit of a recap, in case you are not here, we looked at what was the first of eight, first four of eight signs that the Lord Jesus Christ puts on display through the pen of John to prove that he is indeed God to prove that he is the coming one, that he is the Savior. Where we started off was, interestingly enough, at a wedding. We looked at John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and we, we saw that Jesus is what? That he is the source of life. That he is the one where life can be found. That he is the one that, through which life is given. And that was pictured in, in what? In this, this water being turned into wine. But there was along with that, this aspect that, that I've been trying to thread through the book of John, which is this aspect of timing. Why? Because Jesus' response to his mom is strange as he, as he tells her, hey, my, my, my time has not yet come. But he's not speaking about the miracle because he still does the miracle. And so what is he doing? He is, he is trying to get everyone's attention that what he has come to do is greater than these individual miracles, these eight signs that we're even, even going to look at. That he's trying to remind his mom, no doubt, and all that were there that day, you know what, I'm going somewhere, and it's not to do this miracle, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to purchase redemption. And, and that is the hour that is coming. And I wonder that, that as the, the whole life of Jesus unfolds before his mother Mary, from that beginning day, as she just kind of takes what he had said and ruminates on it and considers it and contemplates it and thinks about it, that perhaps when Jesus was on the cross, and they offered him then what, what would have been considered kind of a wine, right? That they would take in order to numb the pain of those that were being crucified. And what does Jesus say? No, 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 I, I, I won't take it. That perhaps that, that Mary watched that. And the light bulbs were just going off as, oh, this is what he was meaning. This is what he lived for. This is what he wants all to understand. That him being perfectly God, perfectly man, is the perfect substitute. That no one else could substitute themselves for others like Jesus did, being sinless. And so that was the first sign. And in that, we also see that Jesus is the giver of, of joy. That, that outside of him, you cannot find true joy. And then he goes on and he gives us the second sign that speaks to the power of Jesus' words. And, and that sign was found in, in John chapter 4. And that was the healing of the royal official's son. And you'll remember that the royal official thought that Jesus would have to come with him to his house in order to heal his son. But Jesus communicates to him and to all of us that he's not limited by space. He's not limited by location. That his words are so powerful that he can speak a word in one place with, this, with his son being in a different place and heal him at that exact very moment. And that should be such an encouragement for all of us. Why? Because think about the words that Jesus has said regarding us. Think about what Jesus has said that he will be with us. That he will never forsake us that he will be with us always, even to the end of the what? The age. And so no matter what you are going through, the Lord Jesus Christ is with you in that. Right here, right now, today, tomorrow, the next day, all the way until he brings you home to be with him. 
And that is seen in, 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 in the second of these signs through the, the power of Jesus' speech. And then he goes on, and, and, we, and we saw in John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18, the healing of the lame man. And what do we see there? We see that Jesus is the great healer. That there is nothing that Jesus cannot heal. And this should be an encouragement to each one of us as, as no doubt we, either ourselves or others, struggle with sickness at times. And Jesus hasn't changed. We're going to see that this morning again in the most miraculous of ways. But take heart, take encouragement that even if Jesus chooses not to heal you, that does not mean that he's not with you. And that in, in terms of time, that what we are going through right now is, is, is but a day. It is but a fleeting moment. And what we have waiting for us is all of eternity. And then there was the fourth sign, the feeding of the multitude. And, and there we saw that Jesus is the great provider. That he offers what? The bread of eternal life. That's what is pictured. And now as we get into the next signs, turn with me to, to John chapter 6. And it would seem that what John is doing is he's just kind of raising up the ante. As, as these signs get more and more miraculous in some aspects to finally the crescendo that we're going to see in, in John chapter 11. And he's trying to depict for us that Jesus isn't just great in and over this particular aspect, being able to bring joy to us in moments such as the wedding that he's not just able to heal sickness, that he's not just able to provide over and above what would be expected or what we deserve, but that he is over all creation and over all particular nature. As we see him do this, we see him walking on the water. John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. Most believe this is the account of Peter walking on the water. But as I've said before, John goes to great lengths to tell his story, his side of what happened in such a way that Jesus receives all the light. That he is the main character and everybody else is basically kind of thrown out to the side. And Jesus is always the one that we're seeing active and whatever is happening is happening kind of from the perspective of Jesus. And it's the same here. Now when evening came, his disciples went to the sea, verse 16. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles... Notice, that's a long time. They're not doing 50 miles an hour in a boat. The wind has whipped everything up to where the waves are big. And so what's happening? They're barely making any progress. And they're working as hard as they can. And so they're tired. They're strapped. They're getting emotionally burnt. They're probably already emotionally burnt out. And, and now on top of all of that, it's dark. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. The word there isn't the idea that, that Jesus is walking towards them like he's going to just go this way, run right into him, and then jump over and join them. The, the word is that, that he's actually walking alongside the boat. And, then, and in a different account, the word is actually that he's going through the water. It's as if the waves aren't stopping or impeding him at all. And what it's doing is it's showing that he's going faster than the boat. And this makes no sense. And what would they think? They would think he must be a ghost. He must be a spirit being because who else could go through water? Who else could walk on water? No one can. That's the implied understanding of what is happening. They're not out of their minds for thinking he's a ghost. That's the normal, logical conclusion that you and I would come up with too. 
And then as a result, they're afraid. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Notice here Jesus' timing. He doesn't come at the beginning. He comes right at their greatest time of need. Take encouragement in that. That Jesus is here. That he will be here with you. Whenever that, that tough time comes as you are in this boat. It is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. If we took a quiz on this and I asked you how many miracles occur here, what would your answer be? Well, you'd be wrong if you said that the answer is one, it's the walking on the water because there's two miracles. What we do is we miss it sometimes. We read through and we just think, oh, we've already heard this. I know what you're going to say, Pastor Jason. And yet the reality is John is presenting Jesus in such a greater way that you just can't come away and go, oh, man, he is like anybody else. No, he is not just walking through the water. He's walking on top of the water. And then when they receive him, or at least they're willing to receive him, look what it says at the end of 21. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So Jesus instantly takes them from wherever they were, which we have to assume isn't very far. We haven't heard any discussion or anything given to us that lets us believe they're close to the land. But instantly they're at the land. Why? How? Because we're talking about Jesus, and he's not like any other person you and I have met. He is perfectly God. That's what John is trying to communicate to us, and that he is over and above all of creation. He's over all of, what would I say, space. This this isn't Star Trek. This is true. This isn't some sleight of hand thing. This isn't technology This is Jesus Christ and his power on full display. Just the walking on the water would be enough. But John wants us to recognize just how great Jesus is. Do you? Is he that big? Then he goes on. And what we're going to see is that he keeps bringing back this time element. As he he goes through and he leaves this walking on the water. And then, and then what we will see as we get to chapters 7 and 8, as, as we'll be walking through this, we'll see this aspect to where, okay, the, the religious leaders, they want to kill Jesus. Every time he teaches, they get infuriated. And yet, for all the times that they want to stop him, they cannot. Why? Because God is sovereign. Because God's timing is perfect. Turn with me to John chapter 7. In verse 6. It would seem that some of Jesus' disciples wants him to head back home and do some miracles there so that his family members, perhaps his brothers, would believe in him. Look at verse 3. Therefore his brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for, for not even his brothers were believing in him. And then listen to what Jesus says. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here. It's not yet my time to give up my life. That's the perspective he wanted them to understand. But you can tell others about me. But I'm not going to fully disclose myself until it comes to be that hour. And when that hour comes, you will know it, but I already know it now. And then he goes on. And he actually ends up going. And he goes to Jerusalem and he starts teaching. And the more that he teaches, the more they get upset. Look at verse 25, chapter Seven. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? 
Look, he's speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. So they're thinking that they have it all figured out. And then Jesus cried out in the temple teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. He's equating himself with God once again. And so what? Verse 30, so they were seeking to seize him. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So notice the response of what would have been the the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They want to seek him in order to what? To grab him. No doubt they were trying to grab him, but they couldn't. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. But then look at verse 31, the very next verse. But many of the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has. Will he? And so we're presented again, we can see, with what John wants to present us with. What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to believe in him or are you not? That is the question that will, e- that will determine your eternal resting place. And one will be a a place of joy and one will be a place of eternal torment. And it's all based upon what you do with this man, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that John has written, all that we're given in this gospel is to steer us to that particular question and have us answer in a way where we say, yes, he is the Messiah. The question for you this morning is, which group are you like? Are you like the crowd who believed in him, recognizing that that when the Christ comes, he's not going to do any more than he's already done? Or are you going to be like the Pharisees? And continue in your own pride. I think that you have all the answers and that somehow you are going to end up making it to heaven on your own deeds works of righteousness and if that is the case you will be so so mistaken and all of this after the walking on the water and as we continue on when we get to John chapter 8 verse 20 We see again Jesus teaching. And this leads into where we're going to go in John chapter 9. Sorry, let's start in John 8, verse 12. Look at what Jesus says. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Then he's speaking and they want to get rid of him. Look at verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one seized him. What's implied? That they were trying to seize him. They were trying to grab him. But nobody could spoil God's plan of redemption, Jesus going to the cross. It was going to happen exactly as God ordained it to happen. And everything that you go through goes through that same loving grid from God's purpose and plan for you. Man, how encouraging is this? Because his hour had not yet come. And then right after this, look at what we see next is the sixth sign where Jesus then does the healing of the blind man to teach us that he is indeed the light of the world. He doesn't just say he's the light of the world even though he started off with that in John chapter 1, to let us know that he had come to bring us out of spiritual darkness into his spiritual light, into the light of the kingdom. Light represents righteousness. Light represents the, the kingdom of God. Darkness represents sin, the domain of Satan. It's what you see throughout Scripture. And now Jesus takes what he said earlier that I am the light of the world and he is now going to do this sign to prove that he is the light of the world. 
John chapter 9, verses 1 to 7 first. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? That's the way that they put everything through their grid when they saw somebody that was born blind. It must have been because of sin. And Jesus is going to rock their world and he's going to say, no, this man has been blind for all of these years with one intended purpose. It's not as a result of sin. It's actually going to go the other way and to show the glory of God that I am God and that I have come to take you from the spiritual darkness and even this man, the physical darkness that, he, that he's lived in into real light. And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So what was the purpose? What is the reason that God might be glorified, that everyone would know that this is God's work through Jesus? And that Jesus is God. And then he goes on to say, while I am, or verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. And said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seen. We, we know what happens afterwards. There, there, there's a bit of an upheaval. They want to know exactly, the religious leaders want to know exactly what happened. How this man was able to receive his sight back. Why? Because this has never been able to happen in the history of mankind. So they want an answer. And so they bring this man to him. And he says, the man, verse 11, he answered, when they ask him, hey, how then were your eyes open? Verse 10, he answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. And then we see after this that there's a, a, a bit of, of an argument, contention between even the Pharisees. Some of them believe this and some of them believe that. And they're trying to figure out, well, how can this happen if he's a sinner? How would God honor him and, and, and allow this to happen? They end up calling his parents and questioning him. And they're scared that they're going to be kicked out of the synagogue. And so what do they say? They say, well, all we can tell you is he was blind. Now we can see. And if there's anything else you need to know, he's of age. Talk to him. We're out. And then what happens? They call this man again. And notice, this is so encouraging for me. And this again shows the greatness of Jesus. That Jesus, he doesn't just save us, he changes us. And for some, that change is so instant that you can hear it, you can see it. And the way that they then now live their lives, even just the day before, you are different now today. And, and it's not some glowing thing that I'm talking about. It's even in the way that they speak. So li listen to what happens next. So a second time, verse 24, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Implied, stop giving glory to Jesus Christ and crediting him with this. Just give that up and we'll all be good. And he then answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, well, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? And they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, this is so amazing. That this man, newly taken from being blind, speaks so much truth to these leaders that are the ones that hold the truth. 
Well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to show you the hardness of their hearts, they should have just listened to him and they should have repented and they should have said, you know what? What you say not only makes perfect sense, but it fits in with everything that we know from God's revealed word. But instead, they answered him. You were born entirely in sins and are you teaching us? So they put him out. They respond in pride. How are you going to respond this morning? Look at the love of Jesus. What we see next on display. Jesus seeks him out. Remember this guy was blind. And his physical sight has been restored. But he is still in spiritual darkness. And so Jesus seeks him out. Jesus heard that they had put him out, out of the synagogue. And finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the coming Savior? Do you believe in the Redeemer that is to come, the Messiah. And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And this is so sweet. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. No doubt falling at his feet as all of us will. And giving praise and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ right there, right then. Forever changing his eternal state his eternal place his eternal resting place how amazing to see the lord do this taking him not only from being physically blind but spiritually blind and restoring to him instantly eyes that could see that you can't explain for any other reason except for the miraculous power of God's intervention in this man's life through Jesus Christ, who is God. Turn with me to Revelation. In, in case you're, you think that you have that perspective down, okay, yes, I get you, Pastor Jason. Jesus is, is the light. He gives us light. Consider this. Consider what all of eternity future is going to be like. And what scripture says here. And it's hard to know if, if this is meaning that there's going to be no sun or if the sun is just not needed because something or someone, more importantly, is brighter than the sun. And so as a result, we won't need the sun. Revelation, sorry, 21, verse 22 describing the new Jerusalem, describing our eternal resting place that, that's not up in the heavens in the sky. No, this is going to be down here on earth with real glorified bodies and with a real Savior that unlike the first time he came where his glory was hidden and it was masked and you couldn't see it completely, you get glimpses of it. No, when, when we see Jesus for who he is at the end of time, what then will begin all of eternity, li listen to what it says. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, so there won't be a, a temple, so to speak. Why? Because they'll be with us. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. It's all about Jesus Christ. He actually will shine, and it's shining in a way that the sun won't even be needed. Then all the nations are brought in as well. The nations will walk by its light. By who? By his, by his light. Forever reminding us who he is, that he is the God of all gods. He is the Son of God. He is over and above all. 
And he is the representation of God in living flesh. And yet he is 100% God and 100% man. And, and Moses was told that, that if you even come into God's presence, you would die. And yet we are going to be with him. How is this? I don't know. All I know is I don't think about this in the light that I should have or, or else I would be more like Moses on my face when I pray to him. I mean, what, what do you do with verses 24 and 25? The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. No doubt the glory of Jesus will be passed on to us. That's grace upon grace. And in the daytime, look at 25, for there will be no night there. What? Its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Why? Because light means righteousness. Devoid of sin. So of course there's going to be no darkness. And all of this comes through who? Jesus Christ. Because he is the light of the world. And that is what this particular sign is pointing to, the sixth sign. And as glorious as that sign was, and as amazing as that picture is, what we have next is even more amazing. And I can't wait to be able to dig into this and preach all the way through this, but today we're just going to walk through it. And that is this, the most powerful sign of all, the, ri the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11. Look at verses 1 to 6. Again, we see this personal aspect of Jesus and how much he loved people and how Mary and Martha meant something to him and Lazarus meant something to him. And we're going to see Jesus wept. And yet we see too Jesus in all of his magnificence. John understood he was perfectly God and he was perfectly man. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, verse 1. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with anointment, or ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Implied, come and help. But when Jesus heard this, he said the sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Why? So all of us that are skeptical, that would want to say, oh, well, he wasn't really dead. He'd only been dead for like 12 hours, 18 max, and somebody did a CPR on him that, all that time. No, to make it without a shadow of a doubt, he was dead. So he waits. And then verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem. This is significant. Why? Because Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem for the last time. It is now getting to be close to that point where that transition time of saying, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. Now we're going to see now is the time. But not till after this. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Why? Because he was dead. And because that's what they did with their custom. Just as the people in Papua New Guinea come from all sorts of different villages when somebody died in our village and they'd stay there for two or three days wailing, moaning, doing these kind of chants and ominous songs. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, verse 20, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, notice her faith. My brother would, have, would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 
She has an understanding. She's been listening to what Jesus has been teaching, and she believes it. She believes that there will be a resurrection on the last day. What she doesn't yet understand is that Jesus is the answer. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. What do you think Martha was thinking? That Jesus would raise him from the dead? I don't think so. We don't know. But just think of the elation and excitement of what Jesus is about to do in these two sisters' lives, bringing their brother back to them. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, just like her sister. They believe that Jesus Christ would have kept him from dying, but do they believe that he has the power to raise him right there, right now? When Jesus saw, or Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? No, because Jesus wanted to do something greater than keeping him from dying. At that point, he was going to raise him from the dead. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. And Martha, being probably a lot like you and I, the sister of the deceased said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. She's being very practical. She recognizes what you and I probably don't because they, they, they didn't have refrigeration and what have you. In Papua New Guinea, within two days, a, a body would smell so bad that you could, you could smell it from literally 100, 100 yards away before you got to the house. And yet people would go there for three days. This, this is not a good thing. But look at Jesus' gracious response to her. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? What is he doing? He's stretching her faith. She believes in him. She, she is a picture of a, of a saved woman for sure. But Jesus is graciously growing her faith. So they removed the stone, verse 41. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. That's all that Jesus was about. That's all that John's about. That's all that you and I should be about. That those around us, that they, so that they would believe, that we would live our lives, that the things that we say would lead others to him. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around a cloth and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And again, notice the responses. Verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Still, even in that, there were some that did not believe. This sign speaks for itself. What, what does it depict for us? That Jesus Christ has power over death. That we can trust Jesus Christ for our eternity. That we don't have to fear death. Why? Because of Jesus Christ and the fact that he has power over death. 
But what is so amazing about all of this is that this was a temporary resurrection. This wasn't a resurrection unto life because Lazarus died after this. And as amazing as this particular sign is, what's more amazing to me is that the next sign that, that we're given is after the resurrection. You see, the, the Apostle John, he doesn't include Jesus rising from the dead as a sign. He just recounts it for us. And if we were to turn to Matthew, there we would see in Matthew's account that Jesus himself, in, in response to the Pharisees, when they say, hey, show, show us a sign. He says, the only sign that I will give you is the sign of Jonah. That in three days this, this body will be raised up. And they misinterpret, think, it, think that he is talking about the temple. But that is not what he's talking about. He's talking about himself. And so as we go on, we, we see this transition now to where Jesus recognizes that his time has come. That he is about to give up his life. Look at chapter 12, verse 23. This is right after the triumphal entry of Jesus going into Jerusalem and everybody treating him as the king, welcoming him as the king. And some Greeks, after all of that happens, they come and they want to see Jesus. John chapter 12, verse 21. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he speaks of having to die. I, I don't know what these Greeks asked him, what their question was. We want to speak to Jesus. Well, what were you going to say? Are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Savior? And what is Jesus' response? The hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Wait and watch. I'm about to do what I came to accomplish. I'm going to give up my life. And this whole aspect, even in the Lord's Supper, the last time that he takes the Lord's Supper with the disciples, John chapter 13, verse 1, we, we see the same aspect that Jesus recognized that now the hour had come. It's, it's no longer not yet, not yet, not yet. He knows it's close. Because he's God and he's sovereign and he's, control, he's in control of all things. John chapter 13, verse 1, now the feast of the Passover, or before the feast of the before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So notice what he says. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, he knew that the hour was there. But notice also what he says, which is just so encouraging, and we've seen this already in the depiction of his love for Lazarus, his love for Martha, his love for Mary, is this, he loved them to the end. Do you recognize that this morning? That he will love you to the end, that he loves you to the end. And, and what is the end? What is, what is that constituting? That's talking about being with him. He will love you till he gets you home with him. That should give us encouragement to stand up under the struggles that we find ourselves in and to be encouraged. John chapter 17, we, we see the same aspect that Jesus knew that this, his time had now arrived. As he's giving this, this prayer for all believers on behalf of us, Jesus prayed for us over 2,000 years ago. And look at what he says. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. The hour's here now. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. That's what it was all about for Jesus Christ. It's about, hey, glorify me so that I might glorify you. How am I gonna glorify you? By giving up my life, by walking in obedience to what you have planned from before the creation of time. And then in chapters 18, 19, and 20, we, we see what? The betrayal, the trial, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But 
Again, John doesn't look at those as the final sign. This is significant. This should be an encouragement to all of us this morning. Because our life with Jesus doesn't stop just when we come to salvation in Christ. And his care over us doesn't stop when he raises and ascends on high. He continues to look after us, to provide for us. So turn with me to the last sign, the miraculous catch of fish by Jesus. And isn't it interesting that after Jesus raises and Or I'm sorry, in, in, in the John account, this is right after Jesus gets crucified, they go back to fishing. Because this is what they do. This is what they did. This is who they are. And as he raises and he comes to them, we notice that at first they don't even recognize him. And so he almost plays like a, a little trick on them, no doubt taking them back to, to when he had been with them fishing before and calls them into serving him, following him. John 21, verses 6. Well, let's start in verse 5. Now, let's start in verse 4 so that we all know that they didn't know who Jesus was. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they, they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, he's speaking of himself, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord he put out uh, he put his outer garment on for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea but the other disciple came in the little other disciples came in the little boat for they were not far from the land but about 100 yards away dragging the net full of fish so when they got out on the land they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread Jesus said to them bring some of the fish which you have now caught Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it, gave it to them. And the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifest to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. What's the point? The point is that Jesus is our great provider. That Jesus' grace knows no bounds. That he just continually blesses us, provides for us, and looks after us. Just as he did with the disciples here. Teaching them to trust in him more. And that even in this, what do we see? That he's the bread of life. And that he desires that we would eat deeply from him and all that he has for us and by God's grace may he as we spend more and more time in the book of John use the book of John to grow our understanding of who Jesus is but also use it to catapult us out into this world into our communities to tell people about Jesus lead them to him so that they might believe just as John talks about let me close us out here with Pastor Shane and the worship team come up and we respond in song. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. We thank you for this account of the life of Jesus. We thank you for all the accounts, but in particular for John and the, the personal touch that he gives. For how he was the disciple that Jesus loved. We thank you for the reminder, Jesus, of your incredible love. And that extends so far that it goes to being with your mom and that wedding. To Lazarus and his sisters and raising him from the dead. To you dying upon the cross. And bearing the weight, the agony, the wrath 
of God the Father for us. And then to this incredibly encouraging picture of of you providing an overabundance of what the disciples needed, food, fish. All to remind us that you are the bread of life, that you are the light of the world. Lord, use us in those around us and in their lives that we might speak of you, that we might tell others of you so that they might believe and have life and have it abundantly. We praise you for the life that you have given us. And may you continue to be glorified and honored in our lives, in this church, Lord. And keep everyone safe as they drive home today from the camp out. In Jesus' name, amen.